Uh, my name is Brian, one of the pastors here at the Summit. We just read this passage about Jesus debating scribal tradition with a bunch of Pharisees, which I know many of you were like, I just had that argument this past week uh, with my neighbors or a friend or a spouse. And so I thought we'd just jump right into it and walk right through it. Does that sound good? No. I looked at this and I was like, what the heck am I going to do with this? Um, like many of you were here last week, Corbin taught, he got to teach on walking on water. And I was like, I definitely should have given him this one. I should have taken walking on water. And yeah, I, I don't know. I'm excited though. I'm really, really excited. I've kind of dug into this and really tried to like wrap my mind around this. And I'm really excited to teach through this for a couple of reasons. Um, the first is this, is that what Jesus is going to say here, I mean, the, this passage, it's really all about rules. And what Jesus is going to say here is that the way that you understand the role of rules in your life is going to want to be one of the most profoundly shaping aspects of your life. The way you understand the role of rules in your life is going to be one of those profoundly shaping aspects of your life, which is kind of weird, right? Like we tend to think about, oh yeah, money is d- deeply shaping of my life, or the way I understand a relationship or sexuality is deeply shaping of my life. But rules, like especially in Denver, we kind of think we're beyond that and don't really want anything to do with that. But that's what Jesus is going to say. You've got to understand the role of rules in your life. It, it really has profound impact. The second thing I just think you need to know before we jump in is that we're all rule keepers. Uh, And I just say that, I mean, for some of you, you instantly get that. For some of you, you're like, yep, I love rules. I've been that way since I grew up. Like, you're the type of person, you play a board game for the very first time, and you don't let people, like, play until you pull out the instructions and you read it, and you make everybody sit there, and they can't even, like, start unpacking the cards yet. You're like, okay, everybody listen. Um, If somebody rolls a seven, when you have over seven cards in your hand, you must discard half of those cards and put the robber and everybody's like can we just play like we'll figure it out as we go along you're like no we have to keep the rules and you're kind of you know people there's some tension around settlers of Catan or whatever you might be playing because of that but here's the deal for others of you and probably for the majority of you in this room you don't think of yourself in that way uh, very few people in Denver are like yeah I'm like Mr. Pro Rules I'm Mr. Moral Majority I love telling people how to live their lives I love imposing my beliefs onto other people no like most of us are like no I'm not like that I'm not as terrible is that I'm pretty open-minded, I'm super tolerant, you do whatever you want to do, I'll do whatever I want to do. And even, like, if I'm talking about you right now, it's probably easy for you to think, like, you've kind of evolved, this is almost a modern phenomenon to think this way, and you're sort of more brilliant than the ancestors who led you to this point in this moment. It's really interesting, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, actually wrote directly to a person like you. He did this about 80 years ago, though, so, like, this is not exactly a modern phenomenon. He writes about it in mere Christianity, he writes to those of us who kind of, like, Oh, yeah, I'm not a rule keeper. Here's what Lewis says. He says, The most remarkable thing is this. Whenever you find a man who says he does not believe in a real right and wrong, you will find the same man going back on this a moment later. He may break his promise to you, but if you try breaking one to him, he will be complaining it's not fair before you can say Jack Robinson. A nation may say treaties do not matter, but then next minute they spoil their case by saying that the particular treaty they want to break was an unfair one. But if treaties do not matter, and if there is no such thing as right and wrong, in other words, if there is no law of nature, what is the difference between a fair treaty and an unfair one? But they, uh, have they not let the cat out of the bag and shown that whatever they say, they really know the law of nature just like anybody else? So to put this into contemporary language, what Lewis is saying is that all of us possess within us a law of nature, a notion of universal morality that people are supposed to live to a particular code. And it might be different. The expressions of that might be different, but it's still there. And that's why, even if you're the most tolerant person in the world, like, I don't know, we all live in cities and a lot of us share walls with people. If your neighbors are having a party that wakes up your baby at 2 a.m., you're not like, 
well, man, like, you do whatever makes you happy, and I'll do whatever makes me happy, and that's just fine. Like, let's just, like, peacefully coexist. You're like, no, we have to call the cops. You should be arrested. You woke up my baby. I'm not going to get a good night's sleep. And that's just sort of the way that we operate. It's impossible for us not to have some sort of framework of the rules that people are supposed to follow. And even if you're that person who's like, oh, no, I'm not like that whatsoever, maybe the first place you should look is the degree to which you have the propensity to be pharisaical, even about those who claim to be Pharisees that you look at somebody who's sort of uber-conservative and Mr. Moral Majority and is intolerant and looks down on somebody like you, and you're not like, well, man, just keep doing what makes you happy. No, like, you have a prince even in your own heart to be like, you shouldn't be that way. You shouldn't be so intolerant of those who are tolerant, which is in itself intolerance, which is proving the very point that Lewis is trying to make. And I say all this not because I'm like Mr. Moral Majority. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying this because it's important for us to all collectively understand we all love the rules. We all have some notion of the way that life is supposed to be lived. We all adhere to a certain set of principles. And what Jesus is going to say is the way that you think about this, the way you understand the role of rules in your life is going to be one of the most profoundly shaping aspects of your life. But you're probably like, well, how the heck does that work out? Well, I'm glad you asked. We have like over 20 verses answering that question. We're going to walk through that now, okay? Now, here's how we're going to walk through this. This is super complex. This passage is really, really intricate. Um, I feel like I originally wrote this sermon, and I don't know. I had to cut like half of it just for the sake of time. I, I long for a day where I can do like an extended version director's cut of like this sermon. Um, so look for that on Amazon at some point. Uh, but for now, I'm going to try to be as clear and concise as possible because it's easy to kind of get lost in some of the, 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 the nuances of this text. I'm just going to ask three big questions, okay? Sort of what's the problem that Jesus is dealing with? What are the ramifications or the consequences of that problem? And then is there any hope? Seem pretty simple? Okay. Let's go ahead and... Uh, jump into this. We're going to start in verse 1. Jesus walked on water last week. Some period of time has passed since Jesus walked on water, and he's re-entering into a conflict now with these guys who've grown to be his arch nemeses of the scribes and the Pharisees. Look at verse 1. It says, now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, which you see that come from Jerusalem part, that's really expressing the fact that the tension is being heightened. The, the, the scribes and the Pharisees have come from the city, the big city of Jerusalem. They're coming out to the middle of nowhere to meet with Jesus. Usually it works the opposite way, right? People come from Wyoming to Denver. People don't go from Denver to Wyoming. Often, I love Wyomings. It's just the truth, right? That's just the way that it works. Unless there's something really, really significant to go and see, like uh, Yellowstone, for example. It's beautiful. In the same way, these scribes and Pharisees are getting so concerned with Jesus, they are going from the big city to go to the middle of nowhere and to encounter him and to challenge him. And look what happens. Verse 2, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. Most of us in this room are like, well, what the heck is the big deal about that? We're glad you asked because Mark gives a parenthetical uh, anecdote starting in verse 3 to help us understand why is this a big deal. It says, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come to the, from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there were many other traditions that they observed, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now here's what's crucial for you to understand in all of this. It's a law. It probably doesn't instantly make sense. What they're doing is they're bringing not so much a question as much as, as it is an accusation. And it's not so much an accusation of Jesus' disciples, more of an accusation of Jesus himself. See, the, the Pharisees, they could have created the system that there's rules, and there are those who can keep it, and they're fine, and there are those who break it, and they are broken. And God loves exclusively those who sort of have their act together as opposed to who are broken. 
And so they look at Jesus, this man who's been claiming to be from God, this man who even claims to be God over and over again, and they're subtly saying, I mean, it's not even so subtle, they're saying, wait a second, we know you're not from God, and we definitely know you're not God, because you associate yourself with these broken, messy, terrible people. And we know that God doesn't associate himself with people just like that. What's revealed in this, sort of the fundamental presupposition that the Pharisees and the scribes are bringing to the rules, and we have to ask ourselves, do we bring this sort of assumption to the rules as well, is this belief that the rules were meant to function as a ladder that you climb up to get to God rather than a mirror that you look into that reflect back to you your need for God. That probably doesn't make sense. I want to be clear. Can we bring up these pictures? I scoured Google Images for hours. Here you go. So a lot of times, I don't know if you're visual like me, the Pharisees and a lot of us, when they think about the rules, and the, and the Pharisees and the scribes' context here, they're talking about the Old Testament law as well as sort of the, the cultural traditions that grown up around the Old Testament as law, uh, law as well. They had the propensity to sort of look at the rules and to see it on the left. They see it as this ladder that you climb up to in order to get to God. This ladder of salvation that you climb, when really it's meant to be a mirror that you look into and it reflects back to you the degree of your brokenness. The law, the rules were never meant to save you, but to reflect that you can't save you. To reveal our desperate need for a savior. Now let me just give a case study of this because it probably doesn't immediately make a whole lot of sense. I just want to kind of give an example from the Old Testament. A lot of times, I don't know if you try to read through the entire Bible, you start in Genesis, and it's like, whoa, this is like really dramatic, and it's kind of like the ultimate soap opera. People are killing people, and there's sexual controversy. Oh my goodness, this is exciting. And then Exodus, you have plagues and frogs, and oh my gosh, this is stellar. And then all of a sudden, you get to the law, and you're like, what in the world? Like, like I thought that God could like write something a little bit more entertaining than this. And I'll just give you an example. Um, if you look at Exodus 28, for example, um, Exodus 28 here it is right here. Uh, Exodus 28, it goes on and on and on and on about the way that priests are meant to dress up uh, in anticipation of entering into like a shadow of the presence of God. And it goes on. I mean, I'll just read you an excerpt. It's like, and they shall make an ephod of gold, of blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and of fine twined linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to two edges. And I won't read on. Like, we just spend the rest of the morning reading this description. And it's really interesting. Like, a lot of us look at that and they're like, well, that's stupid. That's why we shouldn't believe the Bible whatsoever. I mean, here's the point that's being made in a scene like this one. All it's doing, I mean, we all do this in our lives. It's just making the point that in anticipation of stepping into the presence of somebody really significant, we evaluate and we really prepare ourselves. Think about almost like um, if you're having a significant meeting, like maybe it's like a first date, um, or maybe it's you're interviewing for a job, or you have a big meeting at work. I mean, chances are you prepare yourself for that meeting, right? So you, like, take a shower, uh, or you put on deodorant, or, you, you know, you have, like, a giant beard like mine. You put in beard oil, you comb it. You don't look like the Unabomber of that thing, right? So you're like, okay, I'm preparing myself accordingly because I'm recognizing the presence of the person that I'm about to encounter. Uh, if you're not doing that, that might be why you're not getting a second date, okay? So you might need to be doing that. And as you recognize, okay. And all that, the same line of thinking is going on in this scene as well, where God goes to almost impossible detail to reflect the supremacy and the greatness of who he is, the disparity of the most holy men, of the people of God. And they're supposed to evaluate themselves like, oh my gosh, like how great is God that we have to do all of this to ourselves to just get a taste of the shadow of his presence. It's just revealing the need for a Savior, that he is so great and we are so broken and there's infinite divide and who in the world can bridge the divide of this nature? 
And the Pharisees, they look at this and they're like, oh, that's all we have to do? Like, oh, we'll do it. Oh, we'll just keep the rules. It'll be totally fine. And it's crazy how backwards this is, right? This would be like me, um, I don't know, like getting ready to go on my first date with Megan, you know, and like, what do you do? You have a whole routine, right? So you like take a shower and you condition and you uh, put on deodorant and you put on your clothes and you ask your roommate, like, do I look all right? And he's like, no, you look stupid. And you're like, okay, I'll put on something else then. And then you go and pick up, pick up your date. It'd be like me going to meet Megan the very first time and be like, hey, I look good. We're married now. It's like, it doesn't work that way. It's just an acknowledgement of the presence of the person that we're about to encounter. And in this case, it's an acknowledgement of he is so great and we are so broken that there is this gulf that has to be bridged. Who will possibly bridge this? It's so interesting because like, I feel like a lot of times, I'm not sure what you're familiar with the Bible, but a lot of times we have a propensity to read it and we see the Pharisees and the scribes and we're like, oh, we would never be like that whatsoever, but we are. Like, we are. We, we're all moral. We all have some notion of the way that the world is supposed to work and the way that people are supposed to live. And we tend to use those rules as a ladder that we climb up in order to not really need salvation instead of a mirror that reflects back to us like our desperate need for salvation. And sometimes there's religious expressions of this. Sometimes it's people who have so much theological knowledge or read so much of the Bible or got baptized or go to church or I give away this amount of money where they're just like, yeah, like the world is broken, but there's good people and bad people, and I do the good things, and they do the bad things, and so they really need somebody to die for them. They really need desperate salvation. I, I'm better than everybody else. I need, like, moral improvement. But I don't need, like, the Son of God to die in my place for my sins. That's a little bit extreme if you knew my track record and my resume. There's irreligious expressions of this as well. Like, it's not just the people who read the Bible who think this. It might be the people that read Oprah's book club that think this way. And it might not be that, like, I have a strong notion of morality. It might be priding yourself on the fact that you don't have a strong notion of morality. It might be, like, at least I'm not intolerant as those people over there. It might be, look how loving I am, and look how accepting I am, and look how educated I am. And what's so ironic about this is there's religious and irreligious expressions of this pharisaical posture towards God. These two people would never want to be at the same party with one another, and yet they're manifesting the exact same disease, just with different symptoms. The disease is called self-righteousness. And some people are using the Bible to justify it. Some people are using Oprah to justify it. It's the exact same disease. It's this disease in our hearts that tells us we somehow, if I keep the rules, whatever notion of rules you might have within you, I don't need salvation, but I've climbed the ladder of salvation and I've saved myself. Don't be so hard on the Pharisees because even this passage is not a story for you to mock. If you're doing that, you're probably totally missing the point altogether. But instead, a mirror for you to look into and ask yourself, like, is this me? Like, is this me? Let me just even maybe ask you, like, a, a diagnostic question as you think about this. Here's the question I was asking myself. It's like, if you have some sort of notion that God, like, accepts people and rejects people, if you have some sort of notion that there's an eternity that people go to and one, of it is, one place is good and one place is bad, heaven and hell, if you have the notion that, like, God loves some people and he works against some people. I would just ask you, like, why is it that you fall in one camp versus the other? Just ask yourself that question. Like, why does God love you if you believe that God loves you? Like, why are you going to heaven as opposed to hell if you believe you're going to heaven? Just ask yourself that question. And if what runs to your mind is an answer centered on, well, like, man, like, this thing kind of works like a cosmic kickball game, and, like, 
I'm so moral and loving and tolerant and better than everybody else. Like, of course God's going to pick me. Like, that's just sort of a cute way of saying, like, you've climbed the ladder of salvation. I've done these things, and consequently, like, God has, he's obligated to pick me for his team. If you're running first to your performance, as opposed to the performance of Jesus in your place, like, you've totally missed the boat, and you are like the Pharisees in this story. And we all collectively have the propensity to do this, and we have to deeply ask ourselves, like, do I have the propensity to miss the rules as well? Now, What's interesting about this is it gets even more tangible. It gets more tangible as Jesus walks through the scene because I think sometimes it's like, okay, well, I don't know, maybe it's just a matter of philosophical disagreement. It's like, no, like what we believe, if it's wrong, has practical implications in our lives. And what Jesus goes on to say then is like there's real ramifications, there's real consequences. So that's the question we want to ask ourselves is like, what are the consequences or what are the ramifications of us misunderstanding the purpose of rules? The first purpose of rules... uh, how is it, what, what is going to be the uh, consequence of that in our lives? Now, again, this gets a little bit kind of dicey because Jesus just goes off here. And so, um, yeah, here's how I want to do this. Um, let me first draw your attention to verses 8 and 9. Because Jesus makes a, a point two times in a row that really gets at the root of like, he's almost like a doctor diagnosing the sickness, and he's like, okay, if you fall prey to the sickness, here are going to be some of the ramifications. Here are going to be some of the symptoms that you're going to manifest in your daily life. Um, and so look at verse 8. He says to this group of men, you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. And if you look at verse 9, it says, and he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Now what's interesting about verses 8 and 9 is that Jesus both times very purposefully refers to a singular commandment of God. You see that there? He says it two times in a row, so we know it's not a mistake, or he was just kind of speaking off the cuff. Commandment of God, commandment of God. It's interesting, he's not like, oh yeah, Jesus has this body of teaching, and the Pharisees have this body of teaching, and they're sort of arguing about it. No, Jesus is saying, you are missing out on the primary reason that God gave the law in the first place, to reveal your need for salvation, and then produce within you what is the fruit of the greatest commandment. And you're like, well, what is that? Well, in a few chapters, Mark chapter 12, Jesus actually answers this question when they ask, like, what is the point of all this? And here's what he says in Mark chapter 12. I'll have it on the, scene, on the uh, screen as well. It says, Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. He's quoting Deuteronomy here. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so what Jesus is doing there is he's saying, look, here are the practical ramifications when you miss the point of the rules. You fail to obtain the end of the rules, which is loving God and loving others. And so that's what we see then. He talks then about like a doctor diagnosing a disease. He says there's going to be three kind of people that are really wounded in the process of you living out this disease. Now the first person he talks about is God. He talks about how we will miss him. We will miss Jesus, if we misunderstand the purpose of the rules and see them as a ladder to climb up to achieve salvation rather than, first and foremost, a mirror that reflects our desperate need for salvation. So let's hop back to verse 6. And he said to them, well did, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, which is interesting. It's a popular word we use now. Originally, in the first century, a hypocrite was an actor in a play, and that actor would wear two different masks at two different times. So you can get a picture of like why we say somebody is a hypocrite and why he calls these men hypocrites as well. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. What he's saying 
is if you have this propensity to view rules in your life as a ladder that you can climb up in order to achieve salvation, the natural consequence of this is your heart will be far away from God and you will miss out on the Savior. Kind of reminds me, Flannery O'Connor, who's a brilliant author, she described one of her characters. She was so good at diagnosing this culturally uh, amongst religious people in particular. She wrote that, uh, she was writing about one of her characters, he knew that the best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. And that seems a little bit like off-putting at first. But she's talking about people who are functional hypocrites. That in public, they wear this mask of great devotion or great obedience or great tolerance, but it really hides a mask of the heart that is saying, I can save myself to the Savior and is consequently missing out on Jesus. The real ramification of this well, one of the real ramifications of this. I mean, I hopefully, just by the very nature of us being here, we're like, oh, well, that's like serious, right? Like missing out on Jesus is a really, really serious thing. But it, it, again, it has really practical implications in our lives. And I think about those of you in particular who are like really devout rule followers, and particularly those of you who are really devout rule followers, and how in your lives, one of the most crushing moments has been where your kind of ability to follow the rules has crushed you. And for some of you, it might have been like you had this expectation of perfection that you put on, your pl- put on yourself, and you just realized, like, I can't do that. Right? Like, I'm not perfect. Like, you're, you're kind of running on a treadmill that's getting faster and faster and faster and faster and faster until you fail and you fall off, and it's not very good for you. Gosh, it might be just like you continue to, to function and maintain the delusion that you are perfect, which, again, I would just ask anybody in your life who knows you and loves you enough to be honest with you, like, just, can you just tell me the truth? Like, am I perfect? And they're probably going to tell you things you don't want to hear. It might just be that, like, you're so entangled in self-righteousness and the delusion that you're perfect, you're a little bit annoying sometimes. But for those of you who have maintained, kind of like, I've kept the rules, and I will save myself, I just think about, like, I think about those of you who, like, don't have the job that you want, and yet you, like, killed it in school, and you like went through the right internship and your resume is spectacular and it smells like roses and it's like, why am I not getting hired at the jobs that I want to have? I think about those of you who've gotten sick, even though like you never ate a processed food in your entire life. You know, you crossfit like two times a day, every day, and like you still got sick. You still got like a really serious disease or you know somebody who's like this. I think of those of you who like want to be in a dating relationship and you're like, I did all the right things for this relationship to work out and it didn't. I was the perfect girlfriend. I think about those of you who just, your life doesn't look the way that you want your life to look right now and you've never seen an R-rated movie. Like, I didn't watch Terminator 2. I don't know, like, why is God not blessing me? It's like, why is it, my rule-following friends, why is it that the most crushing moment in your life is when you followed all the rules perfectly and they have failed to deliver what you hoped they would deliver. It's because a false savior is being crucified in your life. It's because you are seeing that anyone or anything who carries the weight of salvation other than Jesus, their backs will break under their weight. They cannot carry that type of responsibility. And you are seeing in your life that you need to turn away from your notion of rule following as the means by which you obtain the life you always clamor for and to turn to Jesus who is God and is able to carry the weight of those expectations and really is the ultimate place that your hopes and desires and joy is meant to be found. But you'll miss them, right? 
Like, it was just kind of like, man, I'm so good. Every once in a while, he might, not, he might have to help out in the midst of a crisis. If that's the way you see Jesus, you're going to miss him altogether. Now, it's interesting. Like, Jesus goes on to say, you're not just going to miss me, that you're going to hurt other people as well, right? So, that, like, the great commandment is saying, love God and love other people. And we put ourselves in the place of God. What happens is we fail to love God, and we wound other people and ourselves in the process. That's the point that Jesus is making over and over again throughout this. So let's look at this, too. Like, we don't just miss Jesus, we hurt other people. Look at verse 9. So he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment, notice the singular there again, uh, of God in order to establish your tradition. Now, I won't read verses 10 through 13 again. Um, basically what happens is Jesus calls these Pharisees out basically what they've done is they've neglected a primary purpose of the law and they've sort of dismissed it on a loophole. So in their case, uh, basically the primary call of the law is to honor your father and mother. The Pharisees have kind of found this secondary tertiary issue in the law. They've elevated it to primary and they've used it to sort of get out of the responsibility of loving their parents really, really well. And this is what happens. We put ourselves in the place of God. When we submit ourselves, here's what happens, is when we will submit ourselves to God's moral framework we will love him, and we will love others. But when we play God and create our own moral framework, we'll not only reject God, but we will wound the people around us as well. And how is this seen? Well, this is seen, I don't know, like, I see this in a ton of people in Denver who came here for a lifestyle, and they're like, yeah, I love God, I love Jesus, and it's like, well, yeah, like, have you ever thought about, like, following the biblical call to, like, commit to a church family and getting baptized and follow Jesus seriously and orient your life around the mission of God. They're like, oh, no, 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 that would, like, infringe upon my happiness. Like, you see this in Denver all the time. Like, people have elevated the sort of, like, concern of, like, i got to be happy. i got to be fulfilled. i got to, like, actualize my, my potential as reasons to disqualify the plain cause of Scripture to orient your entire life around the family and mission of God. Or you think about this with other people. Like, this is the woman, I don't know if this is a stereotype, but this is where I see it most often, like this is the woman who has such strong opinions about the way her house is organized and kept clean, right? It is like on law, it is on parallel with the Old Testament law. It's as specific as the Old Testament law. Her husband says amen. And uh, in all of that, it's like we can't have people over, or if they do come over, they're going to feel uncomfortable the entire time because like if you spill Gatorade on the rug, you will be crucified before you leave this house. Like that's just the rules that we have here around the house. I'm sorry. That's just the way we do things around here. This is the person who loves their money so much they will use people in order to get more money. This is the person who, I don't know. I mean, just think about the quirky, stupid little rules that we adhere to that it's like, if Jesus were here today, he would make sure to let you know that you should never be late for a meeting ever and it's totally okay if somebody's 10 minutes late to treat them terribly because they've been inconsiderate in the process. Like, we all have these sort of, like, weird nuances within us about like this is the way the world is supposed to look and we will reject God and we will trample over people in order to realize that vision you're doing the very thing that Jesus is warning the Pharisees of here but here's what's even more serious is we hurt ourselves as well how does that work well look at this look at what Jesus says verse 14 and he called the people to him again and said to them hear me all of you understand There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, this is really humorous to me because the disciples in this moment, I almost picture them publicly being like, yeah, what Jesus said. Yeah, you guys better listen. 
And then look what happens. And when he had entered the house and left the people, the disciples asked him about the parable, right? So they're like, so what exactly did that mean? <laughs> Verse 18. So they didn't want to ask in front of everybody else, though. They're like, Jesus is going to get mad, and then we're going to be embarrassed. And he said to them, are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Which is a sort of a humorous way of getting at the nonsensical logic that many of us have in our lives. Like he does a case study of food. Like in this culture, what you ate was so significant about kind of the condition of your soul. There was clean food and there was unclean food. And Jesus is like, man, stop thinking the primary problems of the world are wrapped into what you eat. Like what he literally says here is you eat it, it goes through your body, and it goes into the toilet. Like the word he uses there is the Greek word for latrine. So it's a little bit humorous. I love that Jesus can make a joke and use even potty humor every once in a while. Just as one time, okay? Uh, Okay, verse 20, and he said, here's the point he's going to make. He's kind of like lowering our defenses so he can make a really hard point to us. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, immorality, theft, murder, adultery. Oh, I started again. Um, Gosh, I'm just going to do it. Okay, verse 22, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. He's tackling kind of a majority opinion of our culture, and it was the majority opinion of the culture of the, culture of the day as well, that the world is broken, but the primary location of that brokenness is out there. It's not in here. Like, I'm good, and they're bad, and if I can sort of create this system of morality, it's almost like a wall that I can construct around me in order to keep the evil out and to keep the good in. Jesus is like, that is not the way it works. It's almost like, I almost think about it from a military perspective, it's almost like, um, I don't know, it's almost like somebody being in enemy-occupied territory and thinking the greatest threat is outside, and so they build all these walls to keep the biggest threat outside when really there's a double agent on the inside who's going to kill you from within. That's what Jesus is saying. He's like, you failed to, to realize the fountain, the source, the common denominator, and the brokenness in our lives actually beats inside of your chest. What, what sort of rule, like where do you move to get away from that? What sort of rules do you like create in order to like get rid of that? And let me just, I mean, before we even kind of acknowledge the difficulty of this even more, I mean, we said this hurts us. I just want to be super practical here, because here's what I see. Um, I feel like I have meetings with people who, I don't know, I think like in our teens and even like in our 20s, a lot of times we're kind of okay being messed up. And then we hit 30 and we see like the ramifications of our sin in our own life and we're like, man, I got to stop living this way. And I meet with people who, like, want to do that, right? They're trying to, like, kick an addiction. They're trying to kick a habit or try to end a pattern of behavior. And it's almost just like they just talk for 10 minutes about, like, here's all the things I'm going to do, right? So let me, I mean, just for the sake of practicality, here's what I see most often is guys who don't want to look at pornography anymore. They're like, I don't want to look at porn anymore. Okay, well, like, what's your strategy? Okay, well, here's the strategy. I'm going to get an accountability group, and I have, like, 10 accountability groups, and I'm going to have accountability software, and then I'm going to put, like, my computer in this place, and I'm not going to go downtown because sometimes downtown women dress scandalously, and that could, like, lead my heart to fail. And it's just, like, a 10-minute filibuster about, like, what they're going to do to redeem the biggest problem in their lives. And there's no mention of, like, personal responsibility. There's no mention of Jesus. 
And then they're like really blown away that like that system of guilt only worked for two days and then they relapse and make the exact same mistake over and over and over again. It's like Christless salvation does not save. It doesn't save you for eternity. It doesn't save you from your biggest problems. And so you just got to ask yourself, like all of us want to change. Like have you included Jesus in those plans at all? Like, have you been willing to look in and accept full responsibility for your brokenness? Because Jesus says the brokenness doesn't come from outside, it comes from within. Are you a blame shifter? Are you the type of person who apologizes, like, I'm sorry I did that, but if you weren't such an idiot, I wouldn't do that anymore. That's not an apology, that's an insult. Don't apologize that way to people. That's just a side note. Jesus is saying the brokenness comes from within, and we own it fully. You say, okay, like, this is the reality of my condition. I'm going to deal with this. Now, here's the thing is I think, like, the reason we don't want to deal with the reality of our condition is because it's kind of frightening to deal with the reality of our condition. Um, you know, this is where we ask the question, like, is there any hope in all of this? And uh, can I use a Halloween illustration? I know that was last night, but, like, it's November 1st, so I, I feel like I'm in a 24-hour window. So, yeah, I am, okay? Um, you know, like, what the scariest moment of a scary movie is? Some of you watch scary movies. I can't really do it, but some of you watch this. The scariest moment is that moment where the person realizes the call is coming from inside the house, right? Right, now why is that so scary? Not just because there are like murderers in the world, right? Like we all know there are murderers in the world, but a murder in your own basement, you're like, oh my gosh, that's like a completely different thing. And that's why this problem is so scary to us. Like we're totally okay with there being brokenness in the world, but like brokenness in here? Like the call is coming from the basement? Like what do I do with that? And I was even thinking about this um, in my own life. I was talking to my brother about this this past week. And um, I remember growing up, I had an arch nemesis. It was a spider. Um, I think I was like eight years old. If I remember correctly, I'm sure I do. Um, this spider was like this big. You know, it was like, it was about, yeah, the size of a very large formal dinner plate or so. And, um, man, I would go into our basement, particularly the utility closet. Like, everything is scary is in the utility closet, Right. And this thing would, like, scurry across the wall, and I'd scream like a little girl and run upstairs. Or, um, I don't know, like, my brother and I talked about this. He's like, yeah, I remember this one time, like, it ran across you as you were sleeping, and you woke up the entire house. And it was like, now, why is that so scary? I mean, you can watch a National Geographic special and be like, yeah, I'm okay with there being, like, killer spiders in Brazil. But in your basement? Oh, that's, like, a whole different thing. And here's what's really interesting to me. When my brother and I were talking about this, I remember my dad, I think, just got so tired of me, like, not wanting to go in the basement anymore, and, um, yeah, just being terrified all the time. He finally was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go kill that spider. I was like, well, this is how my father dies. Like, <laughs> farewell, dad. <laughs> like, like, farewell, father. And he, like, goes down to the basement. He's like, you wait here. And he, like, goes down to the basement. And he hears this, like, clashing and clanging and banging in the utility closet. And then, like, 15 minutes later, he comes back up. And he's like, it's done. It's dead. It's gone. And then, like, in retrospect, I probably shouldn't have believed him, right? I should have, like, demanded to have seen the body. But, like, in that moment, in that moment, I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, he did it. He did for me what I could not do for myself. Like, this is fantastic. And it was just the the, the, the hope that re-entered into my heart that I could, like, actually dwell in a third of my house was just a really, really exciting thing to me. And is there any hope? Like, is there any hope? when we come to the place where we're humble enough to accept that our biggest problem is within. Yes, there is. 
And so when we look to the unique aspect of the gospel, that we have this God who is a father who doesn't just sort of hand out rules, right? Like every other religious system is like this way, like do this, don't do this, be moral, give away money, be charitable, don't hurt people. It's like, that can't redeem me from my biggest problem. I'm pro those rules, but it can't redeem me. That'd be like my dad giving me like an instruction. Hey, I just Googled how to kill giant, like uh, killer spiders. Uh, read these and then you go, go, go for it, buddy. I'm going to be like, oh, I'm so encouraged now. And God, like a loving father, he does not just sort of hand out a bunch of rules and regulations for us to redeem, be redeemed from our deepest problem. But no, he steps out of heaven into history. And he really, he kind of like goes into the basement for us. He like lives in the way we were supposed to live so that we might be righteous, even though we are not righteous, not one of us. He dies as we should have died so that we might be forgiven and that our greatest enemy of humanity might be put to death as well. And then he resurrected three days later declaring his victory over that evil that dwells within us. And just as Jesus resurrected and he conquered the grave and he walked away from the tomb, so we, when his spirit dwells within us, he enables us to walk away from our greatest evils and sins as well. Is there any hope? There is hope. Because what Jesus first and foremost gives us is not a bunch of rules and regulations. That's religion. That's something completely different than what we believe. The Christian faith is not about what you do. It is about what Jesus has done for you and its ability when believed and received and applied to the entirety of life to conquer the greatest enemies of our lives. Even this enemy that beats in our chest. All right. We're going to pray and then we're going to think about like, how is it that we particularly respond to this? So I want you to be asking yourself that question and we'll respond accordingly. How do, we, how do we respond to this good news? God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for your love, and we thank you so much um, that you are a God who does not just give us a bunch of rules in order for us to hopefully work hard enough to achieve salvation. But no, you are the God who has won salvation, and you call us to a life of obedience. It's not that the rules are intrinsically evil, but they are if they're misunderstood. And our posture and understanding of the life that you call us to is not that you are some evil dictator who's trying to scare us into heaven, but instead you are a loving Father who has won heaven for us. And we will believe and we will follow and we will obey you because you love us. Just like any of us who are parents in this room, we guide our children for the sake of their flourishing. So you guide our hearts as well. And so I pray that we would evaluate ourselves, ask if we carry the same disease of the Pharisees, if so, that we would repent and turn away. And I pray that we would be unbelievably obedient and rule-following people, not for the sake of winning salvation, but because salvation has been won by the one who is powerful enough to win it, Jesus Christ. And we love you, and we ask these things in his precious name. Amen.